0: What surprises me uh, on Vision 2030, it's the role of religion and Islam, which I think they have really done uh, a a superb job in in readdressing the issue of the role of religion and really the social changes that nobody really believed they would ever happen. The little things and the big things, not just the, the role of women, but things like driving, things like cinemas, things like um, restaurants open up and, and all of that. That, that, it's a different country, it's a different Saudi Arabia. That surprised me because uh, it's really what makes a country be a country. And Saudi Arabia um, is definitely a country with a lot of uh, positives and huge prospects. And once they unleashed all these things, You know, the 4% that you quoted as non-all GDP, with the right reforms, if they continue on the same path, you could easily have double
1: that. This is the
0: 966.
1: This is the 966 episode 51. We've got a bit of a modified format this week, as we are dealing with multiple different travel schedules and a lot of balls in the air. So this week, we're going to jump right into our really awesome interview with Dr. John Sfakianakis, one of the leading economists on Saudi Arabia and has been for decades. We've known him for a long time. This is a really great discussion, especially if you want to understand the Saudi economy. Dr. John just knows it inside and out. So this week, we're going to be jumping right into that. And then next week, we'll be back with a normal format. And then the following week, we'll be doing a little bit of after action stuff on President Biden's visit to Saudi Arabia. So pretty busy few weeks here at the 966. So we apologize for the modified format. But we'll be back with a full show next week. But for now, enjoy our conversation with Dr. John. It's just so good. Today, we'll be talking with our longtime friend and longtime economist and observer of the kingdom, Dr. John Sfakianakis. John has a CV that could fill this whole hour. He <laughs> yes. is the chief economist and head of research at the Gulf Research Center in Riyadh, professorial fellow at Cambridge, Chatham House, previously served as a chief economic advisor at the Saudi Ministry of Finance. He's held top positions at several banks in the region and the kingdom, including Masic, Ashmore, Bank Saudi Franci, Credit Agricole. Saudi British Bank, HSBC, again, we could go on and is uh, or was recently often quoted in the Financial Times, New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Bloomberg, and previously a columnist for Sustig. John, great to see you again. Thanks for joining us on the 966.
0: Thank, thank you very much for the invitation.
2: It, I, honestly, John, it could go on forever. I think we first met maybe back in 2004, 2005 when you were with, with Samba, um, but uh Lucian understated it. The you know the breadth of your expertise, you know, as an economist, banker, investment and, and and policy advisor, is 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 pretty phenomenal, and we really appreciate you joining us. Thank you. Um, let's get this started. I, yesterday, um, I participated in a luncheon discussion with Saudi Minister of Investment Khaled Al Falah, and and I mentioned to him that the Ministry of Investments' first quarter, 2022 report was was basically 56 pages of just triumph. It was, it was good news on every front and every sector. I mean, it was an extraordinary first quarter for Saudi Arabia. And, and in fact, the GDP grew 9.9%, the fastest in a decade. On an annualized basis, this would put GDP growth somewhere around 10%, which would be more than twice the four and a half percent annual GDP growth, GDP growth projected for the G20 as a group. So the Saudi economy is on quite a roll. Can you share your thoughts on how I got there and where it might be headed?
0: No, thank you. So I, I, I believe that you know, the economy is doing quite well, uh, especially over the last several months, because um, oil prices have gone up for, for some time and they have stayed up. So no surprise that uh, the performance of the economy is doing well but also because of the non-oil segment, uh, not just because of oil money going into the economy, but also because of the investments that the government is making. Um, And within the government, I would say the PIF is making in helping incentivize opportunities, uh, create alternatives to the oil economy. You know, there is something more than just oil that's helping. And of course, we need to be fair in giving uh, an answer to your question that the oil story is a big part of what is happening to the economy. I mean, um, during the pandemic, uh, Saudi Arabia did well, um, not because oil prices went down. In fact, they went down and they could have done pretty badly. And if you look at the performance of the economy, it did quite well. Uh, but that's because there was a lot of demand that was created within Saudi Arabia. Um, and uh, that that demand was kept within the borders, one, because people couldn't go. So suddenly a lot of that money that would have leaked uh, due to tourist visits outside ended up uh, inside the economy. Um, Saudis discovered Saudi Arabia once again. And uh, domestic demand was... Um, supported as a result of these moves. So overall, you know, one needs to be fair. Now, a lot of these investments that uh, both the PF and the government at large is making um, have a long-term effect. So it will be incorrect of me to say also that, well, the economy has diversified, here we are. No, the economy is trying to diversify, hasn't diversified. And I think that it's difficult to say when it will complete the diversification effort, because uh, we know quite well that in the world we haven't yet uh, seen an example of an oil economy with such huge dependence like Saudi Arabia go from dependence to no dependence. And I think Saudi Arabia will always have a certain amount of dependence on oil as long as the world will want to have oil. Of course, there is a different kind of debate going on whilst we're speaking. And for some time now, especially during the uh, beginnings of the Ukraine crisis and war, uh, we have been hearing a lot about uh, the green recovery, the green revolution, the separation between dictators, despots, and democracies and so forth. And and I think um, that also has to be taken into account because the world could be changing much faster than one Saudi Arabia anticipated and two Saudi Arabia desires, because Saudi Arabia could change, uh, but it might not change fast enough with what the world is doing. And that's the biggest challenge. And I've said that for many years. Um, Yes, it's good to reform. And what Saudi Arabia has done over the last six years are possibly monumental for any economy within the emerging markets for sure, but if we were to place them within OECD and I would say even G20, uh, or if, even within the BRICS, you know, many of these reforms uh, that Saudi Arabia has done in six years, many of these countries haven't done in you know, 30, 40 years. Um, so uh, one needs to recognize the efforts, but Saudi Arabia can change. The question is, You know, what does the rest of the world do? And I think this is a difficult question to answer right now.
2: You raised two questions there. You're exactly right. The top line number is oil-based. You know, during that first quarter, non-oil activity rose close to 4%, and that's all good. Non-oil activity in general is rising, but, you know, it's still driven by oil. This is a question I have. And it, you suggest there's really not a roadmap for Saudi Arabia because nobody has done this in terms of a country that is this dependent on oil trying to diversify. Is that accurate?
0: I, I think even if you go to the you know the the central bank of reforms, which is let's say the Washington consensus, to coin it in an academic uh, way, but also uh, um, to maybe use it within the terminology of uh, the neoliberal economists, which is the international financial institutions. So basically the World Bank and the IMF, if you go to both of them and, and ask them the same question, and you ask them, you know, please tell us, what is the roadmap? Show us the encyclopedia of diversification. They will tell you we have no idea because they haven't done it as well, nor should they be saying to anybody how to do it they kind of have a roadmap, they kind of know the road and uh, they think they know. And while they're going at it, they try to fix it. And I think this is a fair point to be made. Um, I don't think in 2015, anybody would have envisioned that in in the pandemic would arrive in 2019, 2020. Then right after the pandemic, you would have um, a war that will you know, destroy the the fabric of Europe's uh, uh, World War II reconstruction uh, era, and you would have a new, you know, reconstructed NATO, and then you have embargo and uh, oil prices rising to to these levels, which are beginning to hurt the global economy. And at the same time, you would have concerns about uh, global recession, uh, trade wars, isolation, supply shocks, post-COVID recovery. Um, I mean, we've gone through a lot. So I don't think anybody has the roadmap. I think Saudi Arabia has done exceptionally well, but also they made plenty of mistakes. Um, and, you know, within the two, you need to vacillate and find where the, the best option is. But the, the only thing that Saudi Arabia can do and I say this because there are other countries that could benefit from Saudi Arabia's uh, example, Uh, I would say the big lesson learned is that you need to have political commitment. So this can work in certain structures. I don't think the economic reforms that Saudi Arabia has witnessed can work at all in a a pluralistic environment Uh, because you need to have the commitment from the top and the top needs to approach it in a very structural hierarchical way. Um, And also Saudi Arabia was never meant to be a a democracy. It is a monarchy, but it was a very difficult monarchy to manage in the 21st century with all the problems it had, the challenges. And I would say primarily they're economic. Um, Others will say they're social, they're political, they're regional, they're geopolitical, yes. But I would say that mainly a country, a a voter votes on the basis, let me put it this way, of their pocket, not really because of their foreign policy. So in the U.S., presidents come and go because of the power of the purse, not because of, you know, what's the U.S. president's foreign policy with China. That's a secondary issue. And I think the same way every other country functions. So Saudi Arabia is no exception. I I think what will make or break Saudi Arabia, and I think they are on the right path, is clearly the economic reforms. These are very important to get them right. Now, the IMF or every IMF around the world doesn't have the magic answers, nor do economists. And what the leadership has to learn, and I think they have learned it, is to be nimble. But again, it's not easy. You know, it's not easy. It's easier to do such reforms uh, in a smaller let's say, city-state rather than a country the size of Saudi Arabia, the geography, the people. Now you're talking about 35 million people. Now, you know, can you do the same in a country like Egypt? Well, Egypt is nearly 110 million people. It's not easy. And you have the vestiges of the past. I mean, remember, Saudi Arabia has a very big state. The presence of the state in the economy is substantial. And you need to break that and you need to remodel it, restructure it with new people. And you need to do civil service reform. And that's not easy. Um, How do you do this? And the wage bill in Saudi Arabia is extraordinarily high for an OECD country or a G20 country. 50% of the budget goes towards wages. And of course, the challenge is when oil prices go down, and it's not an if, it's when, right? Uh, let's not also be darlings to oil dependency on the, on the demand side. I think oil prices will at some point correct, um, and they will correct whether violently or gradually. Again, the same challenge will be there. What will you do with the residual? What will you do with your wage bill? That's a concern for Saudi Arabia, but it is a concern for other countries as well. Kuwait has a similar problem. And so forth. So, all I'm saying is that um, here I think Saudi Arabia needs to be acknowledged for the work it has done in, given the difficult region, given the unpredictability of oil prices. Now, you might ask, but John, you know, what uh, if they didn't do the reforms? Would Saudi Arabia been better off without the reforms or not? And I think my answer is very clear. I think Saudi Arabia would not have been better off by waiting for oil prices to recover, you know, which was the old type of Saudi Arabia. You know, we wait for a recovery to happen. We go back to status quo ante. Everything is fine. We don't hire. We don't do capex. We don't do investments. Gross fixed capital investments remain low. We accumulate debt. We don't pay uh, the residuals and the overheads and our uh, our people, our contractors, you know, they go out of business. We don't really care. Private sector goes into a recession. Nothing happens. Everybody stays in the state and in the public sector, private sector, you know, um, um, either fires the expats or doesn't have any Saudi. So that's the old model. And that, I think, has been broken. You have a very different Saudi Arabia today. If you look at just the labor reforms that were applied, I mean, they were revolutionary without having a revolution, right? I mean, they they were fantastic in bringing in female talent. Um, Now they need to get that talent to be productive. It's not productive enough. Productivity in Saudi Arabia remains quite low. That needs to be addressed. If they don't improve productivity, Saudi Arabia will not be able to reach its 2030 goals. I mean, mathematically, it is impossible. So they need to fix. And I think the leadership knows that. But also you need to remember that there are capacity restraints. You cannot do everything, you know, in, in in a in a short period of time. And time goes very fast when you are at the very top. When you are both a minister or a crown prince or a king, time flies. And there are many events that happened while you're changing your country. I mean, who would have thought that um, you would have now a war going on in Europe, uh, the, the peaceful, you know, Europeans discovered that they're not so peaceful. Um, and suddenly you have the Swedes and the Finns joining NATO. Who would have thought that Sweden and Finland would do that? that? And who would have thought that the EU would be expanding eastward um, and they would, you know, the Ukrainians and Moldova will be joining soon the EU. I mean, nobody would have thought that Germany would go out and buy 100 billion dollars or 100 billion euros worth of arms from the U.S. in a matter of five days right after the Russians invaded Ukraine. Uh, Who would have thought that you would have a supply crunch on major items? Who would have thought that now we're fighting stagflation? You know, global inflationary pressures are huge. Um, Plus, we have, you know, the... Um, the, the the difficulties of uh, what seems to be a substantial headwind, which is a recession, whether it's, you know, an L shape or a V, I think I'm tilting more towards uh, a deep recession, um, which, you know, it's going to be unavoidable because remember guys, uh, the world has done quite well for 12 years. I mean, stock markets have done exceptionally well around the world, especially in the U.S., Um, People made a lot of money, you had asset bubbles throughout, Um, you know, people in social media started advertising on cars, every car under the sun went up, now we have a shortage in, in manufacturing enough chips to make the cars, so things are quite hazy globally, and then we were told that, you know, we don't have all kinds of inputs to produce goods, whether industrial or otherwise. So I, I think, you know, Saudi Arabia, given the turmoil, uh, it found itself not because of its own doing, because the world became really radicalized with all the things that nobody was expecting, has done pretty well. And of course, the oil price, going back to your original question, has helped quite a bit, you know, making roughly $1 to $1.2 billion every day from the sale of 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 oil um, on a continuous basis, is pretty good news. Um, the question is if that oil money is well used. And I think the answer to that is I think much more today. And I think Saudi Arabia is making some blunt and obvious um, bets and it has to make these bets um, because it, it is time to make these bets. Uh, bets with itself, with its people, with its society, and with the world, you know, Um, uh, and it needs to test its capacity, Um, whether it says in public that they made mistakes, that's um, uh, I think a secondary issue, but the primary issue is that they learn. Of course, the longevity of the high oil price has to be there to sustain some of these bets, because obviously if oil goes to 50 and 40, Uh, the sustainability of many of the projects or at least the funding of um, some of the multiple things that are being done will be much more challenged. Of course, having said all this, I'll go to the corollary, which is that, you know, Saudi Arabia still has excessively, I would say, uh, low debt to GDP because in times like these, you know, debt is not going to matter for anybody. Uh, We've seen that... uh, you know, everybody is going to issue so much debt to get out get out of this mess. Whether they call it Green Revolution or something else, they'll have to do something with capital expenditures to kickstart these economies. Obviously, it's not going to happen next year, because I think next year, we're, globally, we're going to be facing bad news because of unemployment in the advanced economies. And now it's just the bad news because of equities and asset prices collapsing and then it's gonna be housing, and then you're gonna see corporates hiring less and then corporates firing more. And that that is gonna take us right into 24, 25. But then the recovery, which will happen, eventually has to happen because of issuance of debt. So Saudi Arabia is better off. What Saudi Arabia needs to do is that they make the dividends come from these bets, right? Whether it's the tourism dividend, whether it's the entertainment, whether it's domestic economic you know, localization, whether it's you know, uh, all the other um, things that they're trying to do, whether it's the NEOM, the technology, you know, it's, it's the right time for Saudi Arabia to be making these bets um, because it needs to have a fair approach uh, and needs to take matters in its own hands
2: there's so much to unwrap there but <clears throat> let me take you, let me take you back to vision 2030 in in saudi arabia so you 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 state and I, and i think we agree 100% that the plan vision 2030 was required it was necessary the the the, the current trajectory at in, in you know in 2014 and uh was not sustainable you if i understand you correctly you 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 believe that there is uh leadership and discipline sufficient to execute this plan um but you put your finger on something that we hear a lot on the 966 and that is capacity and and as an economist how does so so you know as you say saudi arabia is trying to do a lot of things at once Nothing is in trying to thread them all together and, and hit a target and have these these things come together in the right way. Underpinning all of this is capacity in many ways. I mean, how does how does Saudi Arabia catch up in that regard? Can Saudi Arabia catch up in that regard?
0: Yeah. So I, I'm I'm an optimist by nature. So I think that Saudi Arabia can catch up. Um, I think that they have talent. Um, they just need to have more experience. And I would urge uh, for the experience to be not localized. It needs to be externalized. So Saudis need to stop returning to Saudi. They need to also go outside and get experience. And they need to stay outside for long periods of time. And this is not a recipe for everybody to do that. But you need to have that as also um, a policy-driven part, um, and that that is something that is done. So it is a directive, let's say, that uh, they need to occupy senior positions in corporates, international corporates. They learn the ropes, and they return back to their country. And this is something that we've seen successful countries doing. Um, why? Because it is very difficult, guys. Um, one. To, well, let me say it differently. It's not as easy as people think to put knowledge into brains, but it is also very difficult to move brains. Um, so, it is, we know how much it takes, how long it takes for somebody to earn a PhD. Now, I'm not saying that a PhD is anything uh, but somebody who has been told um, what to write because he his supervisors will will accept or reject what he writes. And he goes through many processes of doing that. But um, let's say a medical doctor uh, goes through many levels of education and learning. Um, you, the, ed, the, the medical doctors really get all their training when they start practicing. And you practice as a doctor and you learn the most when you are in a big place. So if, if you are in a top uh, medical school, uh, hospital, somewhere around the world, and you live and work there for 10 years, imagine how much knowledge you bring back to your country when you return. Um, that is something that none of the Gulf states are doing. Everybody wants to return back. And that's a fault of the rent-seeking economy. This is the vestige of the past which needs to be addressed, right? This is something that is structural. Um, Everybody wants to return back because it is easy to find or easier to find jobs that pay more in your home country, let's assume, because it is a rent-seeking structure uh, rather than really competing outside with the best, right? So this is where you add value to your country. So I think that, and uh, some countries do it purposely. There, there are policies towards that. Uh, many countries do it. And I will not go very far. I mean, um, look at the talent that, uh, for instance, in a specific sector, I would use the food sector, the, uh, the retail food, wholesale sector um, that many uh, Egyptians have uh, in the global market place. Um, Look at the Indians um, um, and and other ethnicities that occupy top tier um, Fortune 500 companies. So, you know, capacity is built that way. That's only part of the solution, right? By bringing back the talent once you send it outside. But secondly, it takes time. And I'm optimistic that, you know the talent that is back home will be able to learn of course you know they'll be they'll need to learn um, and learn from their own mistakes and and I think that is where we are today in Saudi Arabia um, so i I think that you need still capacity to unleash itself it takes time it's not good enough to have two years experience i mean um uh, it's good to rely on um, gray-haired advisors, uh, not including myself. But, um, <laughs> you know, it, let me use, let me use an, an example from the yacht uh, world. Um, yachting is, is a sport that requires experience. You cannot acquire it within two or three years. You cannot hire a manager, management consultant to do the work for you and give you a PowerPoint and tell you how to say what. Uh, yachting comes as, as an as an experienced sport after many years of, of turmoil in the sea. So, uh, you know, there is no quick way of fixing it. Um, but I'm very optimistic that, you know, Saudis will learn the ropes and the more mistakes they make and they need to be confident about the mistakes they make because they make plenty of them, like every other uh, country. Um uh, they need to be proud of their mistakes and move on and learn from them.
2: You mentioned um <clears throat> there is no roadmap for a frontier a, a state like Saudi Arabia of its size to to diversify like it's trying to do. Um another institution in Saudi Arabia that seems to be without precedent uh is the public investment fund. Um this is not like any sovereign wealth fund that I'm familiar with is that is that is that a fair characterization are, are they doing things that uh, are unique uh,
0: I think within the time frame given and the ambitions provided uh yes I think they're very unique and they're very unique in ramping up very quickly they're very unique in in trying to build capacity. They're very unique in trying to do the internal development of the country, internal domestic uh, investments, um, as well as investing outside. Uh, I, I think it is uh, an amazing institution um, for a sovereign fund that basically pre-2015 was nearly moribund. mm mm-hmm. Yeah, um, It was founded in 1971, so I'm as old as the PIF. <laughs> um, so the PIF was moribund for, you know, 44, 45 years of its existence. And over the last five to six years, it has done everything imaginable uh, that a sovereign fund can do. And it's not easy having said that, uh, because I, I think we need to be fair with one comment here. Um, Saudi Arabia has no time, guys. Um, Saudi Arabia should have done all these things 15 years ago, perhaps 20 years ago, you know. Uh, and it's easier said than done. You know, oh, John, how could we have done this? And why? Well, there were different times that, you know, uh, in any case, it's the past. But uh, Saudi Arabia has no time. and has, It has no time because of things that we're going through today. You know, the world is advancing very quickly. Um, Yes, there are issues that I have. Um, There are many, you know, problems that I see with the green recovery globally and how fast we go into this, you know, transition green economy. I'm not so sure, you know. I think before we decarbonize, we're going to carbonize quite heavily. You know, the world hasn't understood that, uh, you know, just because we operate Teslas, uh, that's clean energy. Well, how do you produce the electricity for a Tesla car? Well, you know, cool. that's a that, that, that the consumer doesn't ask that question. I think that's a problem, right? Yeah, the, the rare min- minerals, the rare earth minerals, and uh, the whole debate about ESG and what is ESG. And, you know, I think the world is involved in a lot of greenwashing at the same time. And there's huge things with that. But you know, Saudi Arabia has no time to wait for it to be dictated how it needs to look like and adapt. Um, so I think you know I I would say all of the things they have done, even the mistakes they have done, outweigh you know the mistakes with with the good because they just don't have the time. You know, they need to engage with. Um, 55 to 60% of our, your population being educated and sitting idle at home, doing nothing. Um, and they needed to be engaged. Okay, is it, is it great? You know, are they productive? No, they need to address this. Um, are at the same time also productivity issues a problem? Yes, they are. They need to be addressed. Do I prefer this leadership than the previous leadership to address these issues? No, I prefer any day this leadership. Because I know that their leadership under, you know, they're fighting against time. Because they're, the, the, what they're doing is as a result of the benefits they're getting from oil. You know, they cannot privatize the entire Aramco operation. One that wouldn't be takers because they'll start asking questions. Why are you privatizing the whole thing? <laughs> are you leaving? <laughs> so I, I don't think we're going to get to that. Um, and also, you know, at some point, hydrocarbons are going to shift out. Yeah, of course, you know, will it happen in 2030, 40, 50, 60? No, but do you prefer a leadership asking questions? What happens in the post-oil era? Yes, I do, because before we didn't. We didn't want to ask that. Now, uh, did we need to do energy reforms? Yes, of course, you know. Um, uh, with energy reforms, if you look at gasoline consumption, it has gone down. So the country has become more efficient. Now, of course, those who are stuck with big cars, you know, have to buy smaller cars. Okay, Um, that's a reality. And those who have big homes and used to have ACs running all day, well, you know, they have to buy more more efficient ACs and Saudi Arabia needs to build smaller homes, you know. Um, So there are certain realities. And I think that the structures of these realities were... Gradually, Saudi Arabia is moving out of the rent seeking model. I'm not the rent seeking model of Saudi Arabia of 2005, or when I first came to Saudi Arabia, my first visit was in 2001, and then I'm permanently moved there in 2003. Um, uh, was the you know the old traditional, you know, rent seeking model government makes oil money, hires people in the state, private sector is kind of um, competitive with elements of oligopoly and monopoly, and beneficiaries of the government largesse, Um, and if the government had money, private sector did well, and everything else kind of stayed the same for, you know, 60 years. And then suddenly you have a shock in the economy. So do I want that? I mean, that gives Saudi Arabia a future. The old system does not give Saudi Arabia a future, it gives it a future as long as the outside wants to give it a future, meaning as long as they want the oil and as long as they want them to be included in the geoeconomic map. And we know very well, geoeconomic maps change every day. Who would have thought that, you know, um, we would have in the midst of all this, uh, Europe up in in arms against the Russians and the Russians threatening now not to provide any, any gas, natural gas to the Europeans. During the winter months, I mean, I don't know what the Europeans will do. They should all migrate to Mexico, probably.
2: We we talk a lot uh, on this show on <clears throat> how pivotal King Salman is for this very reason. Recognizing that the old recognizing time is running out, as you say, Saudi Arabia has no time, and understanding that change had to happen now, and you had to put somebody in charge who was going to. If the if he has to bulldoze that change, and push it forward, um, so it's fascinating to hear you give context to that, John. Um, what what aspect of Vision Twenty Thirty and the diversification efforts has surprised you most? I mean, for example, I mean tourism initiatives. I mean they've uh, they've they've been taken up quite quickly, and 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 there seems to be. Obviously, largely domestic, but the numbers are really impressive. I mean, entertainment, or is there something something else that you have found kind of stunning and surprising?
0: Um, so I, I, you know, tourism, Saudi Arabia is making a bet, and we will see what yeah. happens. And why should they not make a bet? You know, they have the sea, they have the land, they have the archaeology. People do not know about it, and they're discovering more and more. The issue is that they live in a competitive environment. So, you know, Egypt is competing, Jordan is competing. Do they have the same capital force as some of the other countries? Probably not, but they are competing. It's a it's a difficult area to, to compete. But again, they have certain elements that once the world starts discovering, which is, you know, the Red Sea and all of that, and there you might need some tweaking, you know. Maybe there isn't so much need for it you know, seven-star services you might need for less. I think that could be tweaked. I mean, again, market forces have this amazing ability to tell uh, a story, and I think the story will be told. Um, Saudi Arabia is competing with the likes of Dubai and everybody else, but it's about time for Saudi Arabia to be opening up because it has a lot of offerings. Now, entertainment, I think, You know, it will be, I think, mainly a a local consumption story. And why should they go to Dubai and Bahrain? You know, they used to go to Bahrain to watch a movie, you know, just stay in Mm -hmm. Saudi. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, of course, the biggest element, in all this, and I'll be very blunt, uh, as I'm always, you know, um, tourists will go if there is some kind of encouragement from the beverage side. Mm -hmm. So if there are beverages... You know, maybe uh, things will be even more enticing, but that's something for the leadership to to decide, not not for me.
2: Is there anything in the Vision Twenty Thirty uh, that's you an aspect that you think is particularly overlooked? And I, I will I, I will offer one. I've been I've been impressed with the fiscal discipline. I mean, they you know they had a, this first quarter they had a fifteen billion dollar uh, surplus and and that you know they they seem to be avoiding this boom bust cycle that you talk about mm. uh and and that to me has been been really uh not only required and necessary but impressive because they seem to be very committed to trying to to break that boom bust cycle and to stay with their targets so for example i think the 2023 budget is uh spending is is uh, projected to be less than this year and they're sticking with it
0: Yeah, I, I, well, I, I think in certain ways um, it, it has been exemplary uh, and exceptionally good. Having said this, I, I think the liquidity situation had to be addressed recently in order to help the bank. So I think yes. maybe they went a little bit too far, <laughs> right? So um, and the the writings uh, were there for quite quite a few months now. So, yes, I think the discipline is there. So, what you described, the the boom-bust cycle. So, you know, the typical structure of um, high oil revenues, high spending. um, Well, a lot of the spending is coming out of the PIF. So, um, it is more segmented and it is more focused. Um, It's not what it used to be, but there is still spending going on in in many of these mega projects. But you did say one important thing, that there is discipline. You know, there isn't just, you know, crazy spending um, and undisciplined uh, capex here and there because that, you know, the question is being asked internally, you know, what happens when there is a sudden correction in oil prices? And they could happen very quickly, guys, in, in the coming months. I think we haven't seen it because we're still... Um, in this aftershock of the Ukraine war. Once we get hit with the main issue, which is the recession that the global economy is facing, um, they will begin to look at oil prices, meaning that consumption will decline, not just for oil, but for all. You know, we're seeing that trade figures are beginning to fall, especially in Asia. If we have a substantial correction in Asia, you know, we're seeing that port deliveries for the major ports in both um, Shanghai and in Singapore and in South Korea is on the decline. We know very well that trade uh, between Asia and between Asia and the rest of the world is on the decline. Um, Saudi Arabia's oil is exported mainly in Asia. So the price of oil in Asia is going to decline, which means that the price of oil is going to decline in the coming months. So they're basically uh, quite aware that the storm is coming. They just haven't announced it, right? Nor should they. But I, I think they're pretty vigilant and very careful in applying discipline um, on the fiscal side because um, 2023, uh, unless we go into more war, <laughs> um, uh, and unless we, central banks uh, uh, try to find quick solutions, which I don't think they will, uh, it will be difficult to avoid uh, a major recession. Now, whether, again, it's an L or a W or a V, I don't think it's going to be a V, uh, you know, quick recovery. This is going to be more a drawn-out recovery. It's going to take a while for us to recover. Not a huge while, but it will, will take several, you know, good months. You know, it will be 12 to 18 months or possibly two years, which means that oil prices will, will have to reflect that. You cannot have a global recession uh, and oil is going to be at $120 a barrel. So oil is going to substantially um, correct. So they're forecasting for that correction and taking measures. You know, what do you do with a budget if oil is at 50 and 60? And and there you have to take measures of what capex you do and how do you address uh, your wage bill? I mean, it is pretty even keel on on with oil at 60 but if oil takes a you know we go into a deep dive of a globe a deep deep re- uh, depression or recession and let's assume I don't expect this to be the case but oil at 20 you know then you have uh, significant deficits and you need to issue debt and so forth so I think they're being very fiscally correct and uh, extremely prudent and I think, they are teaching a lot of other Gulf nations a big lesson, uh, especially the ones that are seemingly um, not able to decide very quickly on how to manage their economies. And I won't name them, but people who know the region understand them. Uh, But Saudi Arabia, besides that, um, has offered the Gulf um, a a lot of uh, optimism uh, as to how to recover. Um, But let me also answer your question, Um, uh, which is very important, Richard, uh, the question about what surprised me with Vision 2030. It's not just the fiscal. um, It it is really the the social, and it, it is really the role of religion that has surprised me the most. And I know this is something that an economist shouldn't say, or how can he opine? On some of these things, because it's not my domain, but because I one have lived for 18 years in Saudi Arabia, and I consider it my own home country. Um, although I, I think they talk about golden visas and passports, I think I will I will never get one. Even if in other countries, probably I would have received four times four passports <laughs> of the same country during the same time. Um, uh, I, I think that is something that Saudi Arabia should address as well, because that's the only way you can attract talent. Um, so you don't just bring your own talent, but that you bring talent by making people included and feel inclusive. And I think that is a challenge for Saudi Arabia and for society. It is not yet inclusive. So that, that, that I need to say as a footnote. But what surprises me uh, on Vision 2030, it's the role of religion and Islam, which I think they have really done uh, a a superb job in, in readdressing the issue of the role of religion and really the social changes that nobody really believed they would ever happen. The little things and the big things, not just the, the role of women, but things like driving, things like cinemas, things like um, restaurants open up and, and all of that, that that it's a different country. It's a different Saudi Arabia. That surprised me because uh, it's really what makes a country be a country. And Saudi Arabia um, is definitely a country with a lot of uh, positives and huge prospects. And once they unleashed all these things, you know, the 4% that you quoted as non-all GDP With the right reforms, if they continue on the same path, you could easily have double that. Um, So 8% non-oil GDP or private GDP, let's put it that way, um, creates enough jobs because you need about 6.5% private sector growth to hire for all the Saudis who are joining your labor force every year. You need it sustainably done over periods of time. And you you need to do it in a way that is both inclusive, but also uh, enough for you to create the wealth. Uh, Because, you know, eventually you need, Saudi Arabia needs to find for the wealth that, the replaced wealth that is not gonna come from oil in the coming 20, 30 years, you know, because you still produce oil, export, you know, roughly six to 7 million barrels. You're not gonna export 10, um, you will export up roughly the same amount. Uh, maybe you will export less. Price will go down for sure, right? So I'm going to stay at 120. So you will have less of that wealth. Then you need to re- replace it with something else. So as long as that something else is done within the country, be it in services, be it with, you know, Saudis being engaged. And now, of course, the next, I think, five years should be all about productivity, again, I, I think I mentioned it four times, it is the only thing that makes Saudi Arabia look quite awkward against all indices. Um, regardless what everybody will say, um, that is something that is punitive on Saudi Arabia's potential. Um, and if aspirationally, Saudi Arabia wants to be an economy larger than that of Mexico by 2030, which is what Vision 2030 says, um, it's not going to be done because of the price of oil, because this year will be the year that Saudi Arabia will have the greatest benefits from the oil story. You know, it will probably hit somewhere around a trillion dollars, but then going from one to 1.5 where Mexico is going to be a very tough order, a very tall order. And the only way to do it, uh, we have seen it throughout, you know, 300 years of economic history. This is only done through productivity changes. So unless it becomes more productive, um, Saudi Arabia will not be able to increase its uh, per capita income in uh, in uh, sustainable in sustainable terms over the next few decades.
2: John, this is like going to class. Um- Lucian, did you did you want to uh, add or jump in or edit?
1: When John speaks, Lucian <laughs> listens, <laughs> and that's that's been my policy since I met John in two thousand nine. So it's a, and I'm sticking <laughs> with it. So um, this has been fantastic, John. Thank you so much for sharing your insights with us.
0: No, thank thank you. I I just you know I think um, Saudi Arabia gets a lot of criticism. Um, for being Saudi Arabia, I would say to uh, Saudi Arabia that uh, you just need to keep pushing with what you're doing. Um, Because one, um, countries don't have friends, um, like people don't have a lot of friends. Uh, Secondly, everybody nowadays is up against themselves and the world. Uh, Things have changed quite dramatically, especially as a result of COVID and post-COVID. And uh, thirdly, uh, I think that I'm very happy to see that within my world of countries I observe, um, or some of my other uh, economist colleagues observe, Saudi Arabia really has done a lot to change. And it takes a lot. I mean, it really takes political will and commitment to keep on pushing. Um, even with the mistakes, even with, um, you know, the 2016 was a difficult year, 2017 was even more difficult, 2018 was a better year for Saudi Arabia. I'm just going back just to relate and give context to people. And then came COVID. I mean, who would have imagined that, you know, we would be locked up. And and Saudis were really locked up in their country, right? But that was to the benefit of the country uh, because entertainment um, was discovered. Domestic tourism was discovered. Saudis went to Alula and discovered Alula. You know, they discovered other parts of beautiful Saudi Arabia, and as a result of that, you know, Saudi Arabia got traction, but also it got demand satisfaction. People got to know and understand. You know, I, I know a lot of Saudis love to go to the south of France. That's great, uh, but the French are benefiting, not the Saudis. Mm-hmm. and and i think more the more you get saudis you know the french by the way just to use this example uh don't travel a lot outside of france so there is a lot of domestic tourism and so saudi arabia has discovered that i'm very happy um and it has wonderful destinations you know the fact that they're building um um in in a friendly ecological way the the Red Sea coast um, is very important. The fact that they're thinking of, you know, adding all these trees, you know, 10 million trees in um, Riyadh, that's that's also great. Um, So I think there is a rediscovery of Saudi Arabia. But as I said, um, nobody can tell, you know, take the blueprint of, you know, Malaysia, And apply it to Saudi Arabia. Malaysia made um, some catastrophic mistakes at certain points in time. The Malaysians didn't like to say, but, you know, uh, they're they're not, you know, the the example, the model. The Mexicans uh, benefited greatly. Um, from the diversification, the industrial diversification of the U.S. It went into Mexico because of cheap labor. Mexico started diversifying away from oil. Still, oil is important for the Mexican economy, but Saudi Arabia is not Mexico. And I say to people that, you know, even if you try to look at best cases and best practice, you know, John, tell us, what's the best practice? You know, management consultants always like to ask you two questions. The low-hanging fruit, what's the low-hanging fruit, you know? And secondly, best practice. Uh, as if, you know, the best practice of Angola is going to be applied um, in, in the Middle East. I had a professor of mine, um, he was my PhD supervisor, um, and um, he always made um, fun of uh, people trying to compare uh, certain countries with other countries. So, Uh, the Egyptians in in, uh, the 1990s loved to compare themselves to the Koreans, but only back to the 1950s because the GDP of Egypt was bigger than Korea, right? Uh, But he would often say that, you know, how can you even start to compare yourselves, Egyptians, with the Koreans? You're completely different, right? So I don't think that, you know, we need to be very careful from taking all these examples of, the literature and examples of, of economic progress and reform and apply it. I think there is a certain sense of Saudiness that has to come into, into the well-being. You know, will Saudi Arabia be able to localize its military industries uh, aspirationally by 2030 by the amount announced? No, it won't. I mean, as much as one can want, uh, it will not happen. Um, because there are certain facts that it does not permit, not, not just for Saudi Arabia, but for any country to to become 50% self-sufficient. Yeah, Israel can do it, but Israel is a very different case. In fact, Israel is nearly self-sufficient in everything on the military side, but that's because of the, the, the specificity of the country.
2: And they didn't do it in a decade.
0: No, absolutely. I mean, the the case of the of the South Koreans, the Taiwanese, uh, the Turks, the Brazilians in the military industry, which I know quite a bit of, um, have done it, as you said, Richard, for 40, 50 years with many pitfalls and mistakes. Um, The Indians tried, they failed. The Brazilians, half of the industry failed. Some of them survived. Um, Embraer survived. Some of the ammunitions and small weapons survived. Everything else failed. crash and burned. Uh, the Turks have been somehow successful, but only recently, but not in the global market, so much, so much as the domestic market. You know, there are many case studies. So I think it's good to have these aspirations. Probably, you know, it will take them far more than 10 years. And, and again, you know, um, the plan is as good as the advice you're given. And the advice given back then was probably not correct. Uh, but aspirationally, it's fine to be pushing the envelope, going back to the initial element that it's good to press your people because you don't have time. Saudi Arabia has no time. time. And I think this is the most important element of Vision 2030. That it, and, and also, it, if you turn it around, it also tells you the story of what was Saudi Arabia and how much it had to change. To come up with the totality of reforms that is Vision 2030, because it's not just an economic plan. It's you know a social, economic reform plan that you know addresses issues of lifestyle, sports, uh, health, you know, not just privatization and GDP and fiscal sustainability and all of that, uh, but it's the totality and the role of religion and you know how do we manage that? You know, so. I, I think that also Saudi Arabia wearing its hat of being a leader within the Islamic Muslim world, being the custodian of the, the holy mosques has a huge burden on itself to continue to do that. And I was very happy to see a more moderate Saudi Arabia on the religious front. Uh, and that required a lot of political will. Nobody else wanted to you know, crack the egg Mm-hmm. Uh, everybody said you know how, how difficult it was you know what kind of Saudi Arabia was that but you know well amazingly Saudi Arabia has done the unthinkable and I'm uh, I think uh, a lot of people are, are very grateful of, of that Saudi Arabia of this Saudi Arabia, the more moderate Islamic Saudi Arabia.
2: you know John, I think we should end there but I want I want to, you synopsized really a lot of what the 966 is doing because you just outlined um, fundamental changes that are ongoing and processes that are underway, transitions that, are, that have have begun, uh, that are deep and profound and, and consequential um, and are essential to Saudi Arabia getting to where it wants to go. And it's not necessarily, as you say, going to get there in the timeline that's laid out. But uh, we really try and bring some focus to how deep and meaningful these changes are. Uh, Because as you know, well, know, most people look at Saudi Arabia and you say they criticize Saudi because it's Saudi. Uh, Even some might have heard of Vision 2030. But when you dig down deep into it and how how, um, just profound and systemic the changes are and how difficult they are to achieve and how aspirational they are and even trying to achieve them. You get a you get a better understanding of the challenge ahead, and you get a better understanding of what's been accomplished. And I think you, you just just in listening to you this past hour, I think you you touched you really run the field really nicely in helping people sort of understand all that's involved.
0: Yeah, let let me say something about this, Richard. I'm very glad you you mentioned these things because um, people, you know, let let's take a great leaders, statesmen. You know if there are any nowadays, and bring them over to Saudi Arabia to to rule the old Saudi Arabia and to understand the challenges that Saudi Arabia had and make them uh, change the environment that they were in. You know, Saudi Arabia was not a level playing field. Saudi Arabia was a country that had a lot of leakage um it didn't um you know uh, go with um uh, the best practice uh it knew it had challenges but it didn't want to reform uh it had fiscal you know um, issues to address uh there was a substantial amount of lack of transparency governance was a huge concern um and 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 that made Saudi Arabia look difficult. Now, look at what has been done. You know, today there is a level playing field. There are strict governance rules. Corruption has been lowered. I'm not saying eradicated. There is no, you know, eradication of corruption even in advanced economies all of that, or other countries, right? There is always petty corruption and, and whatnot. But You know, Saudi Arabia had to start. So you needed to bring in, um, you needed somebody to make the country livable, sustainable. It basically gave today's leadership, gave Saudi Arabia a lifeline, in all honesty. Um, Because let's say, you know, okay, uh, we we did nothing from 2015 to to 2021. Suddenly, we arrive in 2021 and oil goes up 120 grade. We make a million bucks. Okay, we'll have a surplus and everybody goes fine. Um, what do we do? We spend all the money, same stuff. Um, and then, what is the future for our young, for our 20, 30 year olds? Well, they're not working. Our women are sitting at home. Um, and uh, we We still have the same kind of leakages, remittances, expat population. We have a bloated private sector, public sector. We haven't privatized anything. Uh, We have uh, lousy infrastructure in terms of, you know, demands on the state to invest. And we don't know, do anything about privatizing infrastructure, airports, um, healthcare, education, you know, we have huge universities producing people, but they're not going anywhere. And they're all all getting employed in the public sector. And by the way, some of it is still there today. People do have a preference to work for the public sector. Private sector is still tough. That will change, you know. Um, um, But Saudi Arabia gave itself a lifeline. But I would say and hope that it is more than a lifeline. You know, it is... It, it's taken, as I said before, um, uh, its own um, uh, life. To It has taken its future in its own hand. Um, and, and, that's, and that's very important because uh, they deserve that and they own that. Um, uh, they just need to act very quickly. Now, you know, with stereotypes, uh, what can you do? Uh, the world will, will have to live with them. Um, uh, but, and you know, I think I would definitely, and I believe, take this uh, leadership, what I see today in its totality, than what I used to see before. Uh, if I was to make a bet, I would prefer to make this, my bet with this, what I see today, leadership, than with the old leadership. Uh, because in times like this, you wouldn't have a fiscal surplus, Um, You you wouldn't have the residual. You would have a private investment fund that hardly makes an investment outside. Um, uh, Pre-2015, they made one investment, which was in a Korean construction company. Uh, Today, they are multiple investments. Look, some of them are bound to go bad, really bad, right? I'm not saying that they they are brilliant stars, everybody, and they're, you know, if they were, um, they would be teaching other people how to do it. But in the, in the world of investments, it's, it's all about making enough wins to minimize your losses. And as long as you have more wins than losses, your investment thesis is, in, is making sense. The difficulty about Saudi Arabia, and I would end with this, with, you know, is that not only do they need to have dividends to sustain themselves, Um, because of the missing gap that will come as a result of the declining oil wealth. And that's investments outside that the PM has to make. It has to be bold. It has to also, you know, time it. And, you know, obviously you don't always time it well. But secondly, you need to develop the country. And you have a private sector that has been long sitting uh, benefiting from the rent-seeking structure of the economy. So the private sector um, is ambivalent. Um, uh, it was shaken, no doubt, in, uh, in 2017, in November 2017. The level playing has been set. So now the rules are for everybody the same, and it's beginning to engage. But back then, uh, the PF had to act as the seed developer, not just the seed capital, but the seed developer, many of these things, because you had a private sector that was ambivalent, it wasn't sure, you know, you you had a a, a difficult private sector to deal with. And it's still, I would say difficult, because it is trying to restructure itself. So you do have parallel economies, right? Um, What the PF is trying to do, Apinium, is exemplary, or what Neum is trying to do is exemplary, because it is trying to think about uh, a, uh, a territory, a land that will be very evolutionary, but at the same time revolutionary in terms of the landscape, in, in terms of the offerings, in, in terms of the investments. Um, what uh, Saudi Arabia, I think, uh, my advice, my humble advice, is need, needs to keep on doing is speaking from the heart and telling people uh, the story that they're building and it is, I think, a great story Um, and and people will come in, people will invest uh, in in what is being built, I I am very convinced, but it needs to come from the heart with a conviction and commitment, not just the numbers, you know, the 52 pages that you quoted at the beginning, Richard, Uh, investors, real investors don't have time to look at 52 pages. They will look at three or four things. You know, they will look, one, for political stability. Number two, stability of the currency. Number three, the region. Number four, pricing. And if I may so say, say so, incentives. Um, uh, Human capital is important. So capacity is important. um, uh, But that can be addressed with automation industry today is getting into full automation, not even near automation, right? So it is really these five or six things that investors are looking for. If you, if you talk from, from the heart, uh, people will listen to you. Uh, when you color it too much and provide a lot of cosmetics, people run away because they see through you. And, and I think Saudi Arabia um, is speaking from the heart. It needs to continue doing that. And I think some of the key investments of the PIF are really gems. Um, I'm very optimistic, especially about um, uh, some of the um, things that they're doing like NEOM, um, like the tourism um, uh, offerings, uh, the tourism and archeology, span the entertainment, um, and then of course the rebuilding of, of, of Riyadh. Um, really this is the the state getting involved and doing the best and and hopefully you know the lesson learned here is that over time um, the state needs to be crowding out itself and crowding in the private sector because then the private sector the local private sector comes in because you know as the private sector comes in, and i and i think we do have elements of that happening you will get the international private sector coming in. And that is very important for a sustainable economic story for the next 20 years for Saudi
1: Arabia. Few people inside or outside of the kingdom understand it as well as you. Dr. John Svakianakis, thank you so much for joining us. We hope to see you soon. And uh, thank you so much for your insights for our listeners and viewers.
2: Thank you.